Welcome to the Get Real About Safety podcast. In our podcast, we discuss the new view of safety, what works and what doesn't work, to break down old paradigms and help you improve safety performance in your organization. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Pam, and we appreciate you listening. Please share and subscribe and tell others about this podcast. You can find us on most podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Well, good morning, Mike. Morning, Pam. How are we? We're doing good, and uh, it's been a journey with your uh, knee surgery, but it is now finally getting to the point that it's on the up and up, and you're starting to move around pretty darn good. So It is. Thank goodness. (laughs) Thank goodness. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yes. You and I have had uh, kind of a unique career and careers and uh and and somewhat parallel in some ways but we often talk about how things have changed and we've had the opportunity to see tremendous change in our careers so we got to thinking about doing this podcast to talk about the way things were and the way things are going yeah so this may very well be a two or even three-parter uh talking about the way things were to start out. Things definitely have changed over the years. There's been dramatic change and it's exciting. It's really exciting to to be able to see that change um, that seemed pretty stagnant for a number of years, but has uh, picked up and moved dramatically uh, in a good way. Uh, You want to start out for us and talk a little bit about how you got into safety and how you got where you are? Yeah, you know, I was a medic in the military, and then uh, I got out of that and became a paramedic. I was one of the uh, one of the first classes of advanced uh, EMT paramedics, uh, and then uh, moved from there after a number of years into safety, uh, and started my safety career out in the nuclear construction industry, uh, working for a Georgia Power Company. Uh, the group that I was with then is now called Southern Nuclear, but uh, this was uh, back during the construction. The uh, plant Vogel units one and two uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, that just uh, just as an aside from that, uh, in, in context of what we're talking about here, this was only a few years after OSHA even came into being. So this is just past the days of riding headache balls. And then you moved from that on to uh, uh, working for a large general contractor, correct? Yeah, I moved from that into uh, bridge and highway construction, uh, working for a large general contractor, moved from that into the insurance industry where we met. And and then uh, some 20 something years ago, we started ProSafe Solutions. Yes, we did. So we've been around a while. Yeah, that's right. And and our um, careers were strangely parallel, even though I'm from the Pacific Northwest and I went to school to be a nurse. I became a registered nurse and thought I would take a more traditional nursing path. But my family on my dad's side's history has been construction for, uh, well, great-great-grandfather as far back as I can 
trace it. So construction's in my blood. And uh, I, I ended up, I had had EMT training prior to nursing school and was living out in a very remote county in uh, Eastern Washington, um, about 65 miles from Hanford uh, nuclear site. And so I ended up getting hired as an RN um, on Hanford too. Um, and then ultimately getting the opportunity to move into safety for a large general contractor. And that was quite a, um, quite a change, quite a shocking change, actually. Um, when, when I was working as a nurse, um, after some initial bumps and so forth, we, we had the support of the workers tremendously and they really thought highly of us and treated us well and brought us candies and and they really appreciated because we were on a project that was very isolated and and we were it for them if they got hurt um then when i went into uh safety uh lo and behold everybody hated me all of a sudden changed hard hats and now i was uh hated not only by the workforce but by um, my fellow safety professionals and which, you know, got better over time. But I remember clearly the first time I knew that maybe I had made a mistake was when I, they were throwing rocks at me in the port john They'd wait till I went on the port john and they would throw <laughs> rocks at it, which if you've ever been in a port john when it's getting hit with rocks, it, it, it'll shock you a little bit. And, and then it gets your attention. Yeah, it did. And then it escalated into they removed the, the, the lock so I couldn't lock the door. So I had to learn how to hold the door shut with one hand and hold my radio up with the other. Um, but that showed the difference, I think, that we're seeing now is that safety was a uh, police action or considered to be, we, we were the catch you doing something wrong, guys. Oh, yeah. Which, which, which I oh, never yeah. understood and, and did not fully support. I left there, stayed with a large general contractor for 13 years. And then again, like you, we ended up together working together. I worked for you and then we worked as uh, counterparts in the insurance industry before we started ProSafe. So why don't you talk a little bit about what safety was like at, uh, in the nuclear side? Well, uh, speaking of enforcement, that's what I learned. You know, when I first went into uh, the uh, nuclear industry with Georgia Power Company, we were essentially safety cops. And there was no doubt about it. I mean, that's how that thing was set up. And so, uh, you know, we basically walked the, uh, the job site. We caught people doing things wrong. We wrote them up or we actually had the uh, power to have them terminated. And, uh, you know, I know you've heard me tell the story before of marching 12 electricians to the gate who were up on a scaffold with no fall protection. And so we marched them all 12 to the gate, took their badges, locked them out of the job site, and they were banned for life from ever coming back to the job site. And uh, yeah. back, back in those days, we had no idea that some of that stuff just might be system induced uh, or, or that there are other reasons why maybe they weren't in compliance. But uh, we were pretty brutal, to be quite honest with you, and uh, gave, gave no second thought 
about people and their careers and some of the underlying reasons why they're doing what they're doing. And, and I had to learn to be tough like that. Obviously, you know, I started in a safety in safety at a time which there were literally no women in the industry, not for many, many years that I was uh, in construction. But I was never wanting to be the one to fire people. Um, probably just the nursing background had a lot to do with it. I never felt like that should be my position. So the change in that has been, you know, was very welcome to me because I always saw that it was a problem. But, you know, people say, well, you worked in the nuclear industry, so you saw this high level safety. It was high level safety for the time. Compared to other Compared areas to, of construction. Yeah, that's right. But it was terrible. You know, I think about just PPE, you know, safety glasses back in the day were not worn routinely like they are now. And, and they were terrible. They, you know, they were in the monodoggles for a long time. And there was tremendous noncompliance. Nobody wanted to wear them. Uh, and as a nurse, I um, spent a good portion of my day um, work day shift with another nurse and, and we would go from table to table numbing eyes and taking out foreign bodies um it, that was quite a learning experience for me we were really lucky because we worked understanding orders and of uh, a physician we were able to do a lot of things that i don't see that that's traditionally done today but that was a big part of the day so you, you would spend all day long taking foreign bodies out of eyes as you know where you could waiting to hear the man down call yeah. and, and if you remember that gaytronic system that loudspeaker that you know no cell phones of course so you had the loudspeakers going continuously but you quickly learned to filter all that noise out and hear that man down and respond to that and of course fall protection was safety belts sort of kind of yeah right? sort of kind of you know kind of getting back to the uh safety glasses do you remember those original ones they were called OUs, and yes, uh, people I refer did. to them as old ugly because <laughs> they made you for guys it made you look like clark kent right and, right. and nobody wanted to wear them they oh. were uncomfortable they hurt your ears they pinched your nose uh nobody wanted to wear those things but yet uh because that was uh you know the rule in fact, I remember we got accused one time of uh, Gestapo tactics. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget the time that uh, we had about 30 safety people lined up on each side of the gate uh, catching people. Because the rule was when you walk in that gate, you got on a hard hatch, you got on your safety glasses, your boots, all of that stuff. And so uh, we that was our job to catch them and then either terminate their employment or to write them up. And, and which, by the way, uh, that whole thing about terminating people's employment, uh, mm -hmm. that was a pretty doggone routine thing. And, and we had the authority to do that. Um, but uh, that's just the way you did things back in those days. Yeah, and, and it was also um, a violent time. And, yeah. and it stayed violent, I would say, up until maybe the early 90s it started to get better um when i was at hanford uh at one point my grandfather my father and 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 an uncle of mine were all working out on the site 
and my father and I would, you know, listen to the man down calls and think which building is that, you know, and could it be, you know, one of my family members, but my grandfather was a general superintendent and he uh, fired a traveling pipe fitter one point in time and made the mistake of turning his back after he fired him and the guy came up behind him and hit him uh, and uh, knocked him down to the mezzanine grating and probably would have killed him had not some of his men came and intervened. Um, I dealt with threats of violence all the time. Uh, when I left nuclear construction and went to commercial construction starting in Texas, um, I quickly learned that I had to carry a gun. Now I know, you know, everyone said, oh, you can't have guns on job sites. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not no, back I, in those days. I, I, I had I had a gun. Not only in, in Atlanta um, in the eighties, it downtown was really terrifying. I don't know if people realize how scary it was, and especially after hours. Um, and I mean, I needed to have my gun in my hand in my pocket to walk from the parking lot to the job site, and then it went in my boot on the job site. Um, you know, had a lot of threats of violence, um, some big, some small. You remember some of those, don't you? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, working in dangerous areas like that, you pretty much had to do that. But, you know, uh, get, kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, the uh, the fact that people did not like safety people, a lot of it just right. had to do with the approach itself. Yes. Uh, and, and just to give you an example, getting back to that whole thing about the uh, uh the constant enforcement stuff. I remember the days uh, uh, on the Vogel nuclear project of uh, getting a crane suspended personnel platform, or as most people in construction call it, a man basket. Man basket. With a couple of other safety people. And we would have the tower crane lift us up and fly us around the job looking for people uh, either not tied off or that were uh, not wearing their PPE or they were doing something on so a scaffold without guardrails. And we would land down right next to them and say, give me your badge and then head to the gate. And, or we would have, uh, you know, we would have these little write-up slips we would give them. And uh, so, but that was kind of routine. In fact, i tell you, I remember uh, when I was, I almost transitioned uh, at the end of Vogel over to Georgia Power Corporate and they had a whole different approach and uh, they were, more of the view of being resources and advisors and consultants rather than safety cops. And when I first heard that, I thought these people were completely off base. You know, looking back on it these days, that's exactly where we should have been. But, you know, it's just the way things were handled in large, heavy construction back in those days. Well, ironically, it was quite a while after that when I first met you when we were working for Argonaut, who was probably one of the most advanced insurance carriers in workers' comp at the time. Yeah. And was all about accountability and where it needed to lie and all that. When I heard that, it was like, that's exactly it. That, that's exactly it. What we're doing is wrong and it doesn't work. Um, you know, you mentioned the man basket. I have to tell my first ride in a man basket was as a nurse and I mean, it was probably the first week that I was there and they put me in the 
um, head nurse I was working with at the time in a man basket in the reactor building and took us up to the top. And they, the operator took that man basket and started slamming it up against the sides of the building while we were in there. And I remember her screaming and me going, oh my God, they're going to kill us, you know, but it yeah. was, that was that horseplay thing that happened. Um, that was pretty, pretty common then. And you had to be able to show that you were tough. In fact, they took us up top and got out where they were erecting steel and um, were standing there right on the decking before they you go, walked out on the steel. And they're all out on the steel, you know, all, all, the, all the way at the top of the reactor dome, no fall protection. And um, they, they said, are you, you guys got the guts to come out here and get us? And uh, I remember my Sam was the lady I was working with, Pam and Sam, and she said, uh, you get hurt, we'll be out there. And they were both satisfied with that. And after that, that's, that's when we, you know, had this really great relationship with the guys out there that, yeah, okay, they'll, they'll, they'll come take care of us. But that was my first ride in a man basket. You know, the, um, the, the, threats of violence thing it makes me think about when I was on a job in downtown Atlanta we had some conflict going on with an out-of-state um, steel erector who came to town and wasn't the the hometown favorite um, and there was so there was a lot of violence going on in fact the the owner of that steel erector who was out of Texas um, got jumped by two iron workers in downtown Atlanta in broad daylight and almost killed on, on the streets, uh, just headed to the bank. And I went out one day and there was an iron worker who was literally falling down drunk at 7.30 in the morning, <laughs> literally. And I looked at the superintendent for the GCE that I worked with and the supervisor of the steel erector. And I was like, well, I guess you know what you got to do, you know, is get him out of here. So the um, word went around that I had fired the iron worker and, and I, I didn't do like you, I didn't march people to the gate, you know, um, but in this case, you know, I said, he's, he's got to go. So they decided that I had to go and I was in the office um, about a block away from the job when we got a call on the radio that there were iron workers on the way to, uh, to get me. Yeah, basically. And we were down in a, in a basement of a building there. And um, I got the call and they told me to go out the back door and I could hear spud wrenches clanking coming down the stairs as I ran out the back door. And, and one of my co-workers brought my car around for me so I could get out of there. Uh, but that continued for for the whole length of that job um, that that fear of violence and it was well there was a time. lot of you know there was a lot of violence there was a lot of uh, animosity against safety people you know I, i'll tell you i remember one time uh on that vogel project climbing a 300 foot stair tower going up a cooling tower and uh and thought it was raining <laughs> but the sky was clear it wasn't raining that was not rain it wasn't right. And people did not like safety people back in those days. That was yeah. definitely not right. That same job uh, that I was just talking about, I got a bucket of 
hopefully it was just dirty water, but I don't know, dumped on me from overhead and it just completely drenched me. Yeah. And I, I had to go home and change clothes and all of that. But it wasn't just safety people. Um, I remember a knifing in a job trailer downtown Atlanta where got, I heard on the radio that the general superintendent was firing two of our employees for fighting on the job. So, you know, he didn't deal with it himself. He sent them to the trailer to get their checks. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to go to that trailer where the the girls, where the where the women are, and they're and and so you know, I'm what am I doing? I'm going to go over there and make sure they're okay. And one of the young office engineers walked in the trailer to, the, and as they came in to get their checks, they started fighting again, and he jumped in the middle of them. And I was like, don't do that, man! Don't do that! Get out of there, you know? And pretty soon there there's blood. And one of them had knifed the other, and that young engineer was lucky that he was just a very short distance away from getting knifed himself. But that was not unusual. No, I mean, there was a lot of violence. You know, I remember one time um, uh, we had a crane operator who uh, was messing with these iron workers, and uh, the iron workers had been giving him a hard time, and he picked up a porta john and raised oh, yeah. it over their head and shook it. And of course, yep. you know, the, the yep. result of that, well, they came down off the steel and jerked him out of the cab of that crane and they beat the fool out of that guy. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you remember fights. I mean, fights happen oh, yeah. on job sites fairly frequently. I remember when there was this move back and forth as to whether companies could have both union, non-union workers on them. And this, so there's a lot of fighting between the, the Rodbusters and the Ironworkers, the Rodbusters were non-union at that time and the Ironworkers were union. And they were they would wait till a Rodbuster was bent down time steel next to a beam and then they would hit the beam with a sledgehammer on the floor above and it would just right. cause them. So they did that one time to this one Rodbusters, nice guy, but he was big muscular guy and he just, ran up and grabbed that iron worker and beat the stuffing out of him. And so, uh, you know, the rule was that you were fired for that. And so, you know, what they did is they called up the Rodbuster company and said, Hey, you know, your guy here, you know, got in a fight, but <clears throat> can you just put him on another job? Cause you know, wasn't his fault really. And so they put, went to put him on another job. And I remember the general superintendent as the guy was leaving, went out and, had gone and bought him a case of beer and gave him the case of beer and shook his hand and said, I appreciate you beating the crap out of that guy. You know, that's, <laughs> that was a, and speaking of alcohol and drugs, oh my goodness. Bunch of that. Oh my goodness. The, Remember the topping out parties? Well, yeah. And we, I dreaded those because for, for the people that we may have some non-construction people listening to this. So explain what a topping out party is for those that might not know. So when you got to the top of a multi-story building, they would put the tree up there to signify that they had reached the top, you know, structurally with it. And then there would be this <clears throat> big bash and there would be beer kegs and bottles of liquor and prostitutes in some cases. I mean, it was insane. Yep. And so I Crazy. always do my best to, 
make a quick appearance and hand out t-shirts and leave um, before things got out of hand. Uh, marijuana, my goodness, you could smell it everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was all over the job, uh, which you and I remember a contractor when we went to drug testing. You want to talk about that? Who didn't think too much of the idea of drug testing? Yeah, that was actually in the nineties. <laughs> this this was pretty was. good, pretty good time past those Vogel days. But uh, yeah, uh, this was a contractor that put uh, panels on the side of high rises, and so it's extremely dangerous work. And oh, yeah. we were in the insurance industry at the time, and I remember having some conversations with the president and the vice president of the company about doing drug testing. And they were okay with it, with the exception they wanted to exempt marijuana. And right. I said, no, you can't do that. And why would you even want to do that? And they said, because we smoke it ourselves. We don't, we don't see, see a problem else. with it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the mentality back in those days. I'll, I'll tell you another one. We had, uh, I'll never forget back in the Vogel days, we actually had a tower crane operator who was standing about, uh, two sections down on the tower, screaming and waving his arms. It turned out the guy was on PCP and he was going to jump off of that tower. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had to send another crane operator up around him and get up in the cab and drop the hook down. And we had some security guards that came and we put them into a, you know, a man basket and had to fly them up there and they had to restrain this guy and get him in that basket and get him down. But I mean, that kind of stuff was fairly routine. Yeah. My first day, uh, I got transferred to new Orleans, which boy, that was a culture shock, um, to do a job. And at first that when I, when I walked up to the job, there were iron workers and other folks all sitting on the curb drinking beer. I, you know, flown in that day and it was break time and they're drinking beer, you know, and I'm, and I'm like, Ooh, this is not good. And then my, who was going to be my supervisor, the regional guy met me there and I said something to him about what is up with the tower crane operators operating very erratically. And he said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And he went up, climbed the end of the tower crane and found a bottle of port wine sitting out on the uh, boom, uh, just keeping it nice and cool. He was drunk as a skunk. <laughs> so I, anyway, so got through, got through that. And then, you know, I went to meet the project manager in his office and I said, uh, you know, pleasantries. And then I said, look, uh, there's a, down at break time, they're all down there drinking just right in front of the job, sitting on the curb down there. And he looked at me and he said, well, lady, you can't tell them what they can do on their break. And then he opened the cabinet behind him that was full of liquor and said, let's have a, let's have a drink and talk about it. Right. <laughs> so I am like, boy, you are, you're in a whole new culture here. Oh, you know, you talked about the, the crane operator on PCP. Um, I witnessed a death um, was on a job that job in New Orleans, and right across the Canal Street from us was another project going on, and we're on the top of our building looking over the top of that building, and we see a guy who's screaming and hollering, and we're like, "What's going on over there?" And we're watching, and pretty soon he takes off from one side, 
of the building to the other, running full tilt, screaming the whole way, and then dove over the rail head first into a dumpster down below. I mean, that is a doornail, killed him, right? And he was on PCP. So that was quite a... And the horseplay. I mean, you mentioned that a little bit while yeah. ago. I mean, there was just so much horseplay on job sites. Yeah. Uh, and just, just ridiculous things that went on. Uh, for example, one of the common things that welders used to do is fill a balloon full <laughs> of acetylene. Oh, and, yes. And just about the time a guy struck an arc, they would throw it down there and it would explode. Yes. And, uh, of course, you know, we actually had some injuries from that. They thought that was really funny. I mean, uh, there were, there were lots of things that went on like that. Just, just uh, putting rubber snakes in people's lunch buckets. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a common one. I remember one time we had some uh, electricians that had a shack, you know, the, their brake shack, and it was made out of metal and it was covered with tarps and that sort of thing. But a cat kept coming in and stealing lunch. And so they electrified the shack to try oh, to electrocute wish, the cat. That's and terrible. Of course, you know, they never got the cat, but uh, they risked themselves being electrocuted or somebody else grabbing the door of the thing and being electrocuted. I mean, there were crazy things that went on back in those days. So I'm going to go ahead and admit to having done something that today I would never do, obviously, and never recommend. But we were doing a job in downtown Atlanta where we added seven floors to pretty known building here and we had to do it all at night and um we were having problems crime was this is in the 80s and crime was so terrible that we were all parking right around the base of the building and trying to keep an eye on our cars but it didn't matter they kept <laughs> at night you know these people come through and they would um get into our cars if you locked it, they'd take a baseball bat and they'd just bust your windows out and steal your stuff. And so it was becoming really a bad situation. And the iron workers were outraged and there was going to be some violence. And so I called the police uh, several times and never got any response. And so uh, someone on the job said, well, you want to talk to the cops, go down to the Greyhound bus station because that's where they go and drink coffee at night. So I'm like, all right. So I go down to the Greyhound bus station at night, you know, in this terrible crime ridden town and found him. And I went up to him and explained. I said, listen, we have got this terrible problem. And could you guys just, you know, come and make some routine trips around the building and, and try to help us out? And they basically looked at me and go, no, we're not doing that, you know. And so I was getting frustrated. So I said, uh, well, look, if you don't do that, one of these iron workers is going to kill somebody. And guy spun around, cops spun around and looked at me and said, then call us. So I'm like, my God, what are we going to do? So we had a balcony uh, on that building where we could see over, but um, they couldn't see us from the street. So um, I, I got some M80s from Alabama. And we would watch these guys come with their baseball bats to bust into the cars and I'd like one and toss it over the side. It only took a couple of those. And of course, no one injured, but scared them off pretty good. And they quit breaking into our cars. That would work, right? Yeah. 
but uh, <laughs> certainly not something you would expect people to do today, right? No, I tell you, it's just a complete, you know, people today, I guess that's one of the reasons we're kind of doing that is, you know, we got so many new people coming into safety these days and, you know, things have changed so much. Um, you know, uh, theft was another thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Theft was uh, pretty rampant. I remember even in the 80s uh, in, when I was in bridge and highway construction on the downtown connector project in Atlanta, we would have um, routinely bulldozers being stolen, graders yes. being stolen. And, and, you know, we'd come in on Monday morning and here's a, you know. No equipment. Yeah, here, yeah. here's a $200,000 piece of equipment completely gone. And what would happen is that people would come out there on the weekend and they would put on a hard hat and a vest and they would have right. a, a low boy trailer and they would start the bulldozer up, pull it up on that trailer. And then we find out they were taking those things down to Savannah and putting them on ships and sending them overseas. That's right. That's right. I mean, it was just crazy. That, that was the larger type of theft, but smaller theft was just rampant as well. Well, and it wasn't um, just the big stuff either. You talked about the guys put on a hard hat and, a, and uh, well, it wasn't a vest. They weren't wearing vests then. Remember that? that right. Thing, when did that start? 2000 sometime. Um, but somebody just put a hard hat on and walked. Job sites in downtown Atlanta were wide open. Anybody could walk onto a job site. So they hard hat on and walk on the job and they'd go, yeah, look, no somebody would be working with a tool and just turn around and that guy would snatch that up and go. Um, you know, that's yeah. the thing is that, you know, today, people today, they see all this security on job sites. You know, we've got fencing and oh, yeah. sometimes you got, uh, you know, you have to check in to even get in the job site. But back in those days, there was none of that. Uh, you know, we had we had even in the uh, up in the 90s. I remember you remember all the times that we had people climbing tower cranes. Yes. Uh, I, I remember one time one of the uh, activist groups. Uh, climbed a tower crane up in North Atlanta and was hanging the activist banners off of that. Well, yeah, that was the uh, Home Depot headquarters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly Home right. Depot headquarters building. And they were mad about where Home Depot was getting their their wood from and so forth. We had one in uh, um, the company I work for in, in Miami where the uh, guy broke in at night and However, whatever happened, he fell from the tower crane and died. And there was, you know, of course, litigation that we dealt with after that. Same thing in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Um, you know, we had fencing that would get broken down and, and, and we had uh, one um, assault, sexual assault that happened in our building that we ended up with litigation about and uh, a suicide um, on the job and, you know, we would have fencing, but what we quickly learned is you had to go out there and, and, and take pictures of that fencing to prove that it was up because it'd get torn down during, during Mardi Gras was a crazy time. You know, we <clears throat> talked about today and you and I have talked about this a lot, that there's a lot of safety people today that have never seen a bad accident. That's right. And that you was know, pretty routine in our days to see horrific, very devastating accidents. Horrific accidents. Um, you know, there were the, the one that will <clears throat> I will never forget and it was a guy who was cutting this large uh, pipe bracing, um, and 
you know, short version of the story is that there was still tension on the pipe and he didn't know it. And he was actually uh, an apprentice and the iron worker that was cutting it had been cutting standing to the side, but apprentice kept begging. He wanted a cut. So the uh, iron worker said, well, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to go get some coffee. And he squatted on the pipe for those last couple of inches and it came up and took the top of his skull off basically and he was he was still alive i remember him i remember his name i remember going down to the basement he was laying and um face down in a puddle of water and i turned him over and i was sure he was dead from the look at him but i called his name and said something he started to breathe we had to get a man basket get him out of there and all that sort of thing he uh coded when he got to the top out of the basement they got him back they took him to the got him to the hospital they said he'd never lived 24 hours um he lived but he was a young iron worker with children and he had destroyed the part of his brain that manages emotions so he had no control he'd go from rage to happiness to crying to back and forth um and I've never forgotten him and, w- and what happened to him. Uh, just so much stuff like that. You know, I actually had a friend of mine who was killed on the Vogel project, which, by the way, uh, back in those days, we were under a voluntary protection program for OSHA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, Vogel was the first nuclear construction site in the nation to receive the uh, OSHA Star Award. But we had eight fatalities on that job site. Right. And, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and that was considered exemplary safety back in those days. And That's right. Having eight fatalities. And one of them was a friend of mine who fell down an elevator shaft in the turbine building. And uh, I'll never forget that day of getting the call. We had a man down in an elevator yeah. shaft, and I was the first one down there. And I noticed a, a yellow Georgia Power hard hat laying over the side. And uh, that's what our construction coordinators wore. And uh, turned out he's a friend of mine that, uh, and in fact, uh, turned out that the head of safety for construction for Georgia Power at the time, that was actually his uh, son-in-law. And I had to call him and, 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 turn, and report that. And when I told him his name, I mean, he just went into shock. But, uh, you know, those, a lot of people today have not seen some of these horrific injuries. You know, I remember the days of having, you know, this sounds pretty gross, but having somebody's brains and blood splattered all over your clothes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that with the ironworker I was telling you about that the press was immediately there and I had his blood and brains all down my jeans. And I'm like, oh, my God, the press is coming. And I had a step in a portage on. I was trying to clean that off of my clothing before the press got there. <clears throat> the other problem with that is, of course, anyone with a spark of humanity is going to be torn up about those terrible accidents. But what even compounded it is that it was our fault. It literally was perceived to be our fault. It was the failure of the safety staff. Yeah. when something like that happened. That's a big change. You know, today, most people, at least any company that's even fairly sophisticated in safety knows that uh, the, you know, the job of safety is to be an advisor and a resource and a consultant. Not, they're not the people responsible for safety, but safety people were blamed back in those days for accidents. 
Well, I still see a lot of that when you have folks with a misguided overemphasis, which is still so rampant out there on recordable incident rates and safety people feel under pressure to not record uh, those kind of things because somehow it reflects upon them. It does not reflect upon them. Right. Um, I almost lost my job the first three months that I was in safety because of something like that out at Hanford, where there was a situation where there was, um, uh, I was over the tur turbine generator building and there was a crane operation going on outside and there was an oiler that would, during crane operations would get back there and be oiling and doing stuff, which he wasn't supposed to be doing, obviously. An oiler is somebody that greases the crane. Right. And so it was, I don't want to say the general contractor, but it was um, it, not who I work for, but the kind of like the Georgia Power folks. And I reported it on two occasions to who needed to deal with it. And Fortunately, when I had started, there was a safety management guy who had told me, you know, basically told me, said, you'll, you'll never cut it. You know, this ain't going to work out, but at least do this, you know, get a notebook and write down everything that happens during the day and keep that notebook in your truck, not in the office. And I had. And so what happened was that oiler kept doing what he was doing and he had that rag and it got sucked into the gears of the crane and it took off all the fingers on his right hand. And so I'm out there dealing. I was actually out there looking for his thumb, which I found um, so they could reattach it. When I got called to the head of Hanford Construction's office, um, said, you, you got to go in there and talk to him. And my boss was showed up and he's comes in with me. And so the, the still remember the gentleman's name. And he said, tell me, he looked at my boss and he said, give me one reason why she's not fired over this. And so he starts kind of stuttering and I'm looking like he's like backing up towards the door. And I'm like, what the heck, you know? And, and I said, listen, I did report this. And he goes, you know, BS. And I said, I have a diary. He said, all right, go get it. So I ran out and got to my truck and came back in. I showed him in the diary where I, I had reported it and who I'd reported it to. And at the time I was wearing uh, one of the very, since I've got pipe fitter father and grandfather, et cetera, I've got this beautiful turquoise inlaid belt buckle and, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, give me that belt buckle and we'll just call it good. Pulled my belt off, took that belt buckle and put it down on his desk and walked out. And I never forgot that, though. And I know it's changed to some degree, but I still feel that it is if a safety person is in a situation in which management actually tries to hold them responsible for things they don't have control over, that they should do exactly what I did. And that is keep track of these conversations. Yeah, because um, unfortunately that's still to some degree, not, not as much as it used to, but no. to some degree it does still happen today. Uh, you know, I remember uh, even in our insurance days, uh, a president of a, a large industrial contractor came to Atlanta 
and was raising Cain about the fact he was getting medical bills uh, and the insurance company was not paying them. And it turns out our claims people had never even gotten the claims. Right. And it, it turned out that the reason they had not gotten the claims is they had never been filed right. because the safety director of that company was being held accountable for the insurance experience modification rate, which is really based on the frequency of claims. And so he was hiding the claims reports in his desk yep. and, and uh, the president of the company found all, of course, the guy was terminated for that, but you know, that, that whole thing of how you hold people accountable, what you hold them accountable for makes a really big difference. And unfortunately, the safety people too often took the fall for problems. And some of them are willing to take the credit for good results, which, which I don't believe that you deserve credit or blame myself. Right. Right. You're part of a team, right? And so you, I know you remember this, where I had a um, large contractor here in Atlanta who um, they had some real issues with their safety person and they let them go. And, and the CEO called me up and he said, listen, you want to just stop by my office and let's just kick around, you know, going to be hiring this new person. I want to talk about how we're going to set that up and everything. So I was like, sure. So I came in and he said, first of all, I want to talk about how we're going to hold this person, the new safety person accountable for safety performance. And I said, well, you're not. And so we got, <laughs> he didn't like that answer at all. And it, it got into somewhat of a heated conversation. He said, well, you know, I'm accountable for financial results. Why shouldn't he be responsible for safety results? And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll compromise with you on this. If you will put it in writing that he has hire and fire authority with your division vice presidents. In other words, if they're not performing in safety, he can fire them. Then I'll agree that he can be accountable for that. And he said, you know, you're just crazy. And basically I never spoke to the man again. That was end of that conversation. And, and he went forward with that. That's still a problem. If you can't make leadership changes, how could you be accountable for safety performance? Absolutely. And but you, you know, kind that, of, that, that was a pretty common in fact. It, it still exists in some companies today. Well, as you mentioned this earlier, I think it's important to repeat. What is the role of a safety person, Mike? Right. It's to be a resource. It's to be an advisor. It's to be a consultant. Yes. And it's to be a measurer of safety performance. Yes. In other words, measuring how well operations is managing their safety process because exactly. it is their process, not the safety departments. Exactly. You know, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that's kind of interesting about the belt buckle. And, uh, you know, that was another thing that's pretty common back, especially back in the nuclear days, and especially with those pipe fitters, is it was pretty common uh, to uh, walk down a hallway and see uh, sort of a, a monitor out there looking down the hallway, looking for a supervisor or manager. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, back in the, one of the back rooms, you'd have two or three pipe fitters back there making belt buckles out of stainless steel pipe. That's and, right. I mean, they made great belt buckles. They put bolts oh, yeah. in on turquoise. I mean, they made great things. They made cookers uh, to cook food, which, you know, in the nuclear industry, that's a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a violation of the uh, nuclear regulatory commission to cook food in a nuclear power plant, but they were pretty good at it. I, I'll oh, never, they were. I'll never forget one day walking through the turbine building and smelling barbecue. Mm -hmm. And uh, we looked for about two hours trying to find that. We finally found it. 
turned out some pipe fitters had taken a, a gang box, you know, a big toolbox, mm -hmm. and had lined it with preheat blankets that you preheat pipes with before <laughs> welding. And they had a rotisserie in there. And they had chickens and ribs turning, you know, cooking that stuff. And I mean, it was just, those were some wild days. You know, the other thing about the safety award thing is uh, not only back in those, uh, those days in the 80s, but even sometimes in the 90s, safety awards became bartering items. That, that a lot of things got done by bartering, by doing favors. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget one time uh, back on that Vogel nuclear project, I was on a weekend shift one time and wanted a pickup truck because I was having to walk everywhere I went. And so the head guy said, we will let you use a pickup truck for, uh, that belongs to one of the big contractors out there. But he very specifically said, you better not get one scratch on that truck. If you get one scratch on that truck, you'll never get another truck again. I hadn't had that truck two hours and I'm out with one of the iron worker safety people and a, uh, a wasp flies in the window and he takes a magazine and he hits the windshield and busts the windshield. So we go to the mechanic shop and hoping they'd just replace that windshield for us as a favor, right? So the guy at the mechanic shop kind of leans back and says, what's it worth to you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I, he said, uh, I need some stuff. So I said, what do you need? He said, well, I need one of those Georgia Power hats that you guys have. And those were a special award that we had that were only for the safety people. And there were only a few of them. And all I had was just the one that I had at home. And I said, I don't have one. He goes, well, then you're not getting the windshield. And so ultimately, I had to bring my hat in the next day and give him my hat to get a windshield in that truck. But that's the way things went back in those days. Well, and then there was a dark side to that, too. There was folks that would offer safety people things Oh yeah, to look, to look the other way. Pay them off, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, fortunately, I don't think we ever fell into that trap. But I'll tell you that uh, I know a lot of people that did. Yes, absolutely. I, I was warned about that, especially when I got to New Orleans. Someone, I remember a sub, you know, I got introduced to them and they said, hey, you know, we'll take you to lunch. We'll take you here in the quarter and buy a good lunch. And I said, okay, well, we'll catch up. And the person I was with said, let me just tell you something right now. There'll be a price for that lunch. Yeah. So you probably don't want to do it. Well, I think we've talked a lot about how it was. And, and that's not to mention some of the things. You, you briefly did mention uh, safety belts, you know, and that was pretty oh, yeah. common. I mean, up until uh, OSHA actually required harnesses. Uh, safety belts were the thing that we did. We thought we were actually doing a good thing uh, and, and didn't realize the dangers of just putting someone in a belt. But that, that's how you did fall protection back in those days. The other issue that's changed dramatically is, of course, silica. Yeah. And it's ironic how long it's taken. Um, I remember... Um, especially in commercial construction, you know, as a nurse, right? A background in, in nursing. And I remember, you know, learning about asbestos and, and some of the other health related things, but I, I must have not been there that day on silica, but it was clear to me 
that the situation we saw in commercial construction where these guys would be chipping concrete all day long and completely covered, they look like they've been dumped in flour at the end of the day. I'm like, that can't be good. We gotta do something about that. And you know, one of the was one of the early proponents on, you know, we've got to use gotta use water for that. But it was, I'd say around 1990 or so, um, when you and I were first working together, was that 91, 92, um, that one of our co-workers tipped me off to read the book um, by Michael Cherniak about um, Hawk's Nest Tunnel and what all happened there. And that opened my eyes to the whole silica issue. And so that became more and more common that we were proposing water, but we didn't have the tools. We didn't have the ventilated tools. Um, but I remember back in, you know, the, the 70s, the 80s, and even some of the early 90s there, I mean, you know, from my perspective, silica was just not even on my radar. It's just one of those things that I really didn't even realize it was a big deal until uh, OSHA started making a big deal of it. And, you know, and, and, and in fact, that and other things, even respirators, uh, back in those days, we just put people in respirators. I mean, we might give an oh, yeah. organic filter respirator or right. non-organic or, a, you know, a dust filter. We might, we might give them a respirator, yeah. but, but actually doing fit testing was oh, no. hardly ever, that was hardly ever done. Well, um, I, I got a secret to tell you. I'm not sure it's happening today, you know, except for the bigger contractors. There's still quite a bit of that, but you're right. Uh, it, it, it's surprising. I like to ask people when I, if I'm teaching a class on silica, when did you first hear about this? And most people say, you know, 2017, you know, when the standard came out, I, I, I didn't have any idea before that. And that's... A, a, it's a shocking and sad testimony to our focus has been on the more visible physical safety hazards and not understanding the more the health related hazards. Um, it, it, and I, I would say that I think that the last frontier for us in safety is welding. And, and that's one that we have not dealt with. And it's, it's pretty shocking, um, probably the amount of serious health impacts that happen to our welders because we don't deal with ventilation for that. You know, uh, even confined space entry. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, in nuclear construction, we had pretty advanced confined space program at that time, which was almost non-existent out in the commercial arena at that time. No. Uh, and it started coming along. But you remember uh, uh, getting a comment from a, a gentleman uh, back in, I don't know, it was probably the late 90s about how to retrieve somebody out of confined space. Want to tell about that? Well, yeah, I was, you're being nicer about it, but I was doing oversight for an owner and um, I wanna, don't want to say what project. And this electrical contractor had their guys um, working in confined spaces with a rope tied to them. And that was it. And um, I called up the corporate safety guy and I'm like, you don't have, you, you know, you don't have a mechanical means of rescue for these guys. You need a way to get them out. And, you know, he got pretty agitated and said, I got a blankety blank rope and I got a blankety blank backhoe and I'll get them out. And my comment was, yeah, but in how many pieces? 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> so that was big contractor here in but, Atlanta. But, you know, uh, uh, you know, before we move on to, to, to the way things are, I mean, you have to also account for the fact that training was pretty minimal back in those days. I, mean, I remember, you know, when I first went to work in safety, uh, my training was walking around with an old gentleman that had been in construction for about 40 years and him showing me things. You know, I didn't get any formal training in safety. I was a paramedic when I went to work for a right. Georgia Power Company. There was no training. It was walking around no. with this gentleman saying, look for this and look for that. And, um, and then ultimately, I, I do remember a few years later, uh, and this is back before you had OSHA 10 and 30-hour courses and 500 courses and all that stuff. There, was a, there, there were two guys from the OSHA Training Institute in Chicago uh, who came down and did a thing called an OSHA 200 course. And that today would be sort of like a 510. You know, it was a, it was a standards course. And it was about a four-day course or something. But that's the first time I ever got any formal training in what the standards actually said. Well, see, I never got that. What I got was a copy, the government-issued 1926 standards. Remember that book? Yeah. Remember yeah. The, the print? The one that was so difficult to find everything in. And you couldn't find anything No in index. And, and, and no idea. And one of the best resources, and I'm going to name him by name, that I had back in the day was a guy named Steve Hayes. Yeah. And as when they started the um, OSHA Training Institute, Georgia Tech being what, one of the first four? Is that correct, Mike? Yeah. 1990? What year was yeah, that? Yeah, I think it was 1990. Yeah. 1990. Steve was heading that up and he had, he'd come from uh, a contractor here in Atlanta. And he was a great guy and I could call him and just ask him, you know, Steve, can you help me out? And that relationship grew. And, and then you and I knew Steve and he, um, when they started the first 500s, 510s, um, both you and I were guest instructors. Yeah. I came and did concrete and I can't remember what you did back then. I had concrete and demo and, yeah, I did some cranes and electrical and sort of cranes and yeah, stuff like that. And then, of course, when Steve got ready to move on to other opportunity, that's when um, he called you up. Yeah, want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, Steve was moving on into private industry and had recommended me to Georgia Tech uh, to take his place. And at that time, we had just started our company ProSafe. And uh, so I explained that I'm not really interested in being an employee, uh, but I would be willing to do that under an agreement. And so that's sort of how that developed and uh, uh, it just kind of grew from there. And then, you know, of course, you and Philip uh, uh, shortly thereafter came in and uh, we sort of split all of that up. And, yeah. You know, and, and of course, you know, I've pulled out of a lot of the regulatory stuff today, but you and Philip are still very active in that. But that's, that's kind of where all that started. Well, Philip's pretty much heading all that up and I'm just helping here and there. Um, but that was a. It was a great opportunity for us at ProSafe and it was a learning experience. You know, you, you um, and I steal this and say it all the time myself, but um, the 
axion uh, C1, do one, teach one. Yeah. And so we had seen it and we had done it, but when you have to teach it, you really learn it. You dig in. You do. And then of course you have all the challenges to that, um, which that was always the dreaded class. I think Philip still dreads that class from time to two was the 502. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the high level tough group. That's the folks that have been trainers. They've been in safety a long time and, and you <laughs> try to tell them something and they challenge you and well, you better be right. <laughs> but you know, uh, you got a good point about the more that you do it, the more that you practice it, the more that you take the feedback from the evaluations, the more that you seek to continuously improve, the better that you get. And, you know, honestly, you, you rarely get any kind of positive feedback. Uh, yeah. But I, I do remember one time a guy walking up to me at a break and said, you know, you guys, do you realize how many people you've probably impacted over the years? Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, how many, how many safety people uh, do you think that you have probably trained over the years? I'm, and I said, well, you know, I've never really thought about that. But, it, you know, it turns out, I mean, it was probably thousands. Uh, you know, one time we were the only ed center in the whole Southeast. Right. And, and, uh, uh, and, and then over the years subsequent to that, and he goes, you know, the fact that you guys have trained all of these people, and they've gone out and trained other people that, that the number of lives that you've impacted is enormous. And I said, you know, I've just never really thought about it like that. But, you know, that's the one thing that's always stuck in my head was that, that, uh, that positive comment from that guy. But on training, like you said, training was non-existent. So the OSHA Training Institute had tremendously changed that. Yes. But that evolution is still happening. And, you know, we started with just regulatory training. That was the main thing. And we started with regulatory check the box. Yeah. Right. Uh, check the box. They were trained. Um, now the obviously the, the right focus, the, the focus is, is that you actually know that you, you train and educate. Right. And that includes, you know, skill assessments and, and knowing that they actually comprehended and they came away knowing things. Um, the model for training today is, you know, confined space is, is my favorite example for this. And is that, you know, you do some classroom training. And in fact, I was in a, doing a class one time just a few years ago here in Atlanta. And we had a, uh, I had a vendor with me, which I always encourage you bring in your vendor with your monitor and so forth and, and let them do some specific manufacturer training. So he did some training and talking up front and then he took the monitor and he tossed it to somebody in, in the classroom and he said, okay, turn it on. And the guy just stared at it. He had just gone through exactly how to operate it, the buttons to push and all that, and he couldn't do it. And that just reinforced to me, you actually have to do it. So then he kind of laughed and he said, push the button. Okay. And walked him through. And then, you know, we went out and everyone had to actually put their hands on it and demonstrate their ability to use it and demonstrate their ability to calibrate it and practice with a blower and all of those things. That is, is the, the way that training needs to be. We've got to move away from the check the box training. 
Yeah, and a lot of the more advanced folks have done that, but uh, you know, there's still many, many companies out there that just, they simply just want a piece of paper to say that people have been trained. Uh, they could care less about the quality of the training, uh, and and just they just want a piece of paper in case they get inspected by OSHA to say that we trained their people. What what frustrates me though too is this um, training as punishment. Yeah, and. OSHA, you know, has is not helped with this. Right. Well, they have, have lots of they have lots of standards that say people have to be retrained if they're uh, in violation of the standard. Which oftentimes, as we know today, uh, that sometimes that's induced by the operating system itself. It's not necessarily the worker. Exactly. We know that people sit through a training class. Depending upon how good that class is, they get a little bit of information they don't get it all and then they go out in the field and now it's the real world and i've heard and i know you've heard people say in the field well that's what you heard in class this is what we're doing out here yep. and if nobody's doing that that we talked about in the classroom that worker's not going to be doing that and that reflects the system and and especially leadership and so punishing the worker by saying, you know, I've had this happen so many times. Somebody comes into a class and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you've already been in this class. Yeah, but I got in trouble, so I got to come back. You know, yeah. well, is he listening or paying attention that time? Of course he's not. And that's not what I want to see equated with training as punishment. We want training to be something that people actually enjoy and get something out of. I mean, it's there to, to keep them safe to send them home safe. You know, one of the refreshing things is, you know, we've been talking about how things were back in the day. And of course, you know, things have changed and they've transitioned and they've improved. You know, there's still some issues out there, but by and large, there's been many, many changes. And probably uh, the most refreshing change to me is the movement toward advanced safety management and the yes. human performance. Uh, you know, moving more towards uh, repositioning safety with operations, holding supervisors and managers accountable for safety rather than the safety people. Yes. Uh, measuring the right kind of indicators to to drive safety in the organization. Uh, you know the the whole psychological aspects of uh, performance coaching, uh, and then of course the human performance aspects of uh, understanding human error and how you respond to that. Because for for so long people were punished for errors that they honestly didn't have control over it. So this whole new understanding of human error and how to deal with that is, is a big advancement. And uh, we're seeing that change, a lot of the bigger companies, but there's still a lot of folks out there who've never even heard of this stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say that it's just a tiny, 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 tiny sliver of construction that is at that point. The physical conditions on jobs have, has trained, has changed dramatically. You know, I mean, it's things as simple as is is good uh, perimeter protection, you know, rather than cruddy guardrails and broken guardrails and so forth. Housekeeping is is enormously changed. Yeah. Um, that's what's dramatic. I, I remember a job one time that literally you couldn't walk across the floor and a superintendent telling me, look, lady, I've I've sold jobs with trash on them, you know. Um, <laughs> housekeeping was just not the thing. And so those physical conditions are so much better, but the blame, shame, misunderstanding of the difference between 
errors and violations and how to manage that, um, understanding culpability, um, understanding the critical role that leadership plays and, and, you know, number one, if a worker is doing at risk behavior, why does he think that's okay? Well, he obviously thinks that his immediate supervisor is okay with that. Mm -hmm. And so there you go. There's your mirror, right? There's where your issue is. You can put 15 new workers under that same leadership and you'll get the same results if we're not dealing with that. Because leadership creates the culture and that culture has a major influence on the decisions workers make out there. Absolutely. So for the companies that are moving in that direction, I really applaud them. But, you know, uh, you know, things have changed. And I agree with the physical changes. You know, even on the, uh, the housekeeping thing, you've got companies today, some companies that are even practicing lean construction. And they're, they're yes. implementing uh, 5S uh, and, right. and, and other lean type concepts uh, for continuous improvement, which is dramatically different than, uh, you know, job sites used to just be a pigsty. Well, and I'm a huge proponent, as you know, of lean. Um, there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. Um, probably the big one is, well, we're just going to do 5S. Yeah. No, you, you and, and, or, well, safety's going to run this. No, no, it's not run. It's, it's site leadership runs this. That, that's the way that has to work. But the beauty of it, when it's done well, is that you're try, you're striving for continuous improvement and the elimination of waste, and you're connecting safety waste and operational waste. We in safety get too over. We get over focused on safety, and we don't talk about how if we change how we do this here with worker input and come up with a better way to do this, it's going to be safer, but it's also going to be more efficient. It's going to save us money and, and productivity and time. You know, a good yeah. example is that you just sent me a thing, an email the other day about a thing called a rigging rack study. Right. Uh, where right. people put rigging on racks instead of just laying the, the slings yes. and the, the chokers on the ground out there. And, and, and that study illustrated just how much time got wasted trying to find yes. the rigging and, uh, and how much money was saved and over a period of time just I mean, it was pretty dramatic, the thousands of dollars that were saved just simply have a rack out there. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I completely am mystified how leadership on a job would not understand that leaving something as expensive as a piece of rigging in the mud makes sense financially. You know, just take the safety regulation out of things here and just look at, does that make sense? And so, yeah, and that, that's tied to that whole 5S process of perfecting our systems and, and eliminating waste and hunting for tools, hunting for equipment, hunting for rigging is pure waste. Yeah. And you end up people using a piece of rigging or a tool that's unsafe at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it drives shortcuts. Exactly. We've talked about a lot of stuff here, Pam, and, uh, you know, I know that We've kind of covered a lot about the way things used to be back in the day. Uh, thank goodness a lot of that stuff has changed. Uh, still a lot of stuff that needs to change. But uh, anything else you feel that uh, 
would be uh, something that would uh, be valuable for folks to hear. No, I just kind of have to laugh that, you know, when I was young, I used to hang out with my father, grandfather and uncles, all who were in construction. I would listen. I would sit at the table and listen as they played poker and talked construction stories. And I remember listening to those stories and I remember those stories. And and now I realize I'm, I'm old <laughs> and I'm telling stories, too. But we learn from those stories and, and we learn um, how to change and how to how to be better from that. But, you know, I do think it's helpful for especially younger people getting into uh, safety today, especially construction safety, to have some context of where things have come. Yes. Uh, you know, it's easy for somebody to come into the workforce today and see all the modern safety technology we have and all the great training and all the things that go on in safety today and, and kind of think, well, that's the way everything's always been. It's not. There yeah. has been a massive evolution. And uh, so sometimes I just think it's helpful people to have some kind of a historical context uh, of the evolution of things. And then we will save to another podcast a talk about where we're going. Yeah, and that'll be a good one. And that's going to be a good one. Hope everybody enjoyed this, and uh, we'll see you on the next one down the road. Thank you, Pam. That was great. Appreciate it.